0: It's amazing how much uh, we think that uh, some of these rights, human rights issues are uh, political when if you read the Minor Prophets, as uh, Abraham has reminded us so many times, we find that God has always been the advocate for uh, proper wages, proper uh, property rights, moving the ancient landmarks. I remember in every political season here in America, uh, people think that one party stands up for the poor people and the other one is for the rich people. And I say, well, actually, uh, God's party is the one that's standing up, as Abraham said. And I so appreciate this uh, ministry that he's introduced us to. Well, this evening, if my computer comes on, I'm going to teach. And if it doesn't, I'm going to teach. So it doesn't really matter to me. It just is a, a lot more, uh, here we go, here's the acid test, praise the Lord. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, uh, this evening we're going to look and we're, we're in the home stretch of the halfway point. This is the third of six lessons looking at what it means to cultivate biblical humility. And what we've seen so far is that God reduced down uh, in his message to us about humility through his final old testament prophet john the baptist we call him he reduced down his desire for us into seven words i call them the seven greatest words he christ must increase and so it's my goal duty challenge obligation desire to constantly be looking for ways for christ to increase in my life i mean i have all of him He doesn't have all of me. See, that's the mystery of salvation. At salvation, God doesn't give his fear by measure. I get all of him. The problem is he doesn't have all of me. So I want him to increase his hold, his sway, his ownership. And so we saw that the first time we were together, yesterday morning. Uh, Then this morning, we looked at Christ's message. Jesus gave what became in the early church the, the most well-known, the first portion published of all the scriptures into a Christian book outside of the Bible, which is the Lord's Prayer? And the final petition, the, the kind of the climax of the prayer, it begins with focusing on God, and it ends with saying everything is about God. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And actually what Jesus is saying, for God to fill our lives, we have to empty something out because we're full of ourselves and so the more that I empty and ask God to empty me the more that Christ fills me he increases and he gets the glory so this evening what does that look like I mean it's wonderful to talk about you know kind of ethereal hypothetical you know gigantic ideas but the real test is when you walk out how do you do it I mean, it's, it's so important that we not merely, as James said, the first teaching church pastor of Jerusalem, as he said, don't merely be, what, hearers of the word, but we're supposed to be, what, doing it. Yeah, and, and so that's why sometimes we get so much knowledge, it gets us puffed up, and we need to think about what the great missionary statesman C.T. Studd his Bible study method was he had two pens, a red and a blue. And everything he saw God desired, he put a red check mark by it. And every time he applied it in his life, he put a blue check mark by it. Because we're guilty of knowing far more than we do. Uh, For the last couple years, I began a set of, uh, a series of men's small group Bible studies. I had 10 of them running uh, simultaneously. And I invited men to come and I said, but you're going to really be uncomfortable, but you have to, if you come to this, you have to agree a minimum of three months. You can't drop out. And wives were cheering because, you know, uh, husbands uh, sometimes when it gets tough in Bible studies, they don't like it and they leave. And so they all signed on for three months minimum. And at the first session, I said, we're going to read the Bible, find the truths of the Bible, and then we're going to write out a prayer applying it to our life. All the men love to read the Bible and find principles. None of them like to apply it. To themselves, they could say, "This is a good verse for my wife. This is a good verse for my kids. This is a good verse for my co-workers." But what does it look like in my life is painful. See that we're we are effective in telling other people what to do. We struggle with applying the scriptures to ourselves. So. A good way to do it is to see it in someone else's life. And so Luke's message is what humility looks like, and we're going to see that starting in verse 8. Peter's message is telling us that humility is a choice. In fact, he says this, that we're to gird ourselves with the apron of a slave, elders he's talking about, but then he says, yes, all of you. He says elders are supposed to be the prime. I'm talking about in Baptist churches, the pastor is the elder, but in all the other churches, they understand there's a plurality of elders, in most of them at least. And the elders are the recognized, gifted men that God has given to be the spiritual leaders of the church. And they match the qualifications of, of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so, and by the way, I don't mean to offend anybody. God says they're men. I know that's great uh, discussion about that. But actually, the Bible does say that, that uh, they are men, but it doesn't matter uh, if your church doesn't understand that yet, but the Lord will work on that. But uh, in the Scriptures, it says these men, who are elders, are supposed to tie on the apron of a slave. And that picture is what Peter says is a choice. Paul goes on to say, in, in uh, the next session we're gonna go to, in Colossians three, that, that humility is like a garment, it's like a coat, it's like a, a, a piece of clothing that, that is hanging in our spiritual closet, as it were, and every day we have to choose to either put it on or not. How long has it been since the average, normal American believer has thought about putting on humility and going through the day clothed with the humility of Christ? That is not a frequently pondered idea. And and that's what, from the beginning, Paul says humility is, is a discipline that we say, I can't go through life because Satan loves pride because he's in the embodiment of pride. I can't go through life having this vulnerability to his influence by by having pride, so I must clothe myself. And so we'll see that uh, in Paul's message. And then our final message is uh, when we go to James, which is actually the first New Testament epistle, and see that humility is really the grounds for spiritual protection. It's the way we resist the evil one. Because we cannot, in our own strength, humble ourselves. That's why it is a choice But then God pours out his grace and that's what we'll look at. So that's just a brief overview. We're at the halfway point there at number three. But what does it look like to offer God a life wrapped with humility? Well, what I say is God makes life so simple. He tells us we have a choice to glorify him or not. When I was uh, in college, I went to a Christian camp called the Wilds in uh, Brevard, North Carolina. And the camp director there was a friend of mine. And he started a chant that they always went through in that camp. And it went like this, only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And he told the campers, he said, if you forget everything else at the Wilds, Christian campground, go out of here knowing that when you leave these gates into every day of your life, you have two choices in everything you do. When you're picking your job, when you're going to school, when you're driving your car, you can please God or please yourself. There's no middle ground. A lot of people like the middle, they want to be, Between, God says, God is very absolute. He says, either you glorify me or you don't. Either you please me or you don't. Either what you're doing will last forever or it won't, it'll burn up. And so God makes life so simple. He tells us we have a choice to glorify him or not. And every day, every choice, every moment is either for him or not. Now that's simple. That makes life simple. The message for us today is humble people are seeking God's glory, not their own. Proud people don't seek God's glory. And in Luke 2, we see this simple truth about God's glory being attached to the simplicity of humility. And we're talking about the shepherds. And God provides us with one of the most beautiful portraits of humility in this well known account of Christ's birth. And basically, just, I mean, the, what we know from the Christmas story. Do you know any shepherds' names? Have you ever thought about that? All of our manger scenes have those shepherds. Every year, the kids all dress up like shepherds. We never hear their names. Why? Because the infinite God of all wisdom, who omnisciently knows everything, picked a group of people that were the stars of the birth of Christ event. They were the witnesses. They were the first to see Christ. They were the ones that God invited to the birth event. And they're nameless. As so, not like us. I mean, even, you know, Getty Images has to put the slash the photographer's name. We don't have anything that's unattribution attached to it. We always want to know who. God says, I pick nameless shepherds. Number two, God wants us to do something that only he really sees. Who knew about the shepherds? If Luke had not given us this record, Joseph and Mary did. And the townspeople that listened to them excitedly talk. But nobody else knew what happened if it hadn't been written down by God. And, and God wants us often to do things that only he really sees. You know, it's nice to donate and, and have a wing of a university named after you or to have a, you know, a, an auditorium named after you, but you know what the Lord says? When everyone knows what you did and they honor you for it, you've received your reward then. But when, like the shepherds, we offer something to God that few people ever know about, that's when God says, I will honor you. If you make sure you get honored on earth, good. God doesn't say it's bad. He says, you got it. But that's all you're getting. But if you let me honor you, you'll be honored. And, and we know, I mean, Paul clearly talks about God's rewards. But finally, when God uses us to do his plan, even if what we did is not seen or ever known by very many on earth, God remembers what we do. And you've all heard, I mean, do you remember the name of the person that led Billy Graham to the Lord? Do you remember the name of the person that led Dwight L. Moody to the Lord? Do you know anything about the, the different Uh, monks that influenced Luther that spawned 500 years ago, the the Christian Reformation, the Great Reformation. We don't often know or remember those people that God used, but God never forgets them. And I think about, from our perspective, there are these mega-Christians. I mean, and and they're, they're kind of like household names. And that's wonderful. And we all have been blessed by them. But really, God has this army of people who do his plan and no one ever sees them. Nobody ever knows about them. And God says, I remember. I will forever remember. In fact, it says in Daniel chapter 12 that those that turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. When God rewards us, it's an endless event. So what he's saying is trade the temporary, proud, prompted attribution of praise to you on earth and and avoid that as much as humanly possible so that I can honor you. And that's the choice we make every day. Pleasing God or pleasing self. So what are some lessons from the shepherd? Well, first of all, kind of a, reminder of what we all know, life for a shepherd in century one was very difficult. We kind of uh, think of David, you know, the shepherd and the shepherds in the Christmas story. But they had cold nights and long days. They were always distant from their family. And they rarely had friends because they lived out there with the animals. Sheep stink and shepherds, often if you're around them, smell. And sheep wander, and shepherds search for them. And life is never restful, and work is never done. And a good shepherd would sleep in the doorway of the fold. How uncomfortable would that be? And when you think about it, it was almost like being marooned or, or put on a desert island when you were a shepherd because you were, you were forcibly kept watching them all the time and couldn't connect with life back home. At the low end of Jewish society was a shepherd. They were away from the synagogue. Soon, agoge means together, together. They did not, so they weren't a part of the synagogue. They were absent from the temple. Do you know why? They wouldn't let them in. Why? Because they touched dead things. If you touched dead animals, you were unclean. You couldn't come in. Part of their life was touching dead animals, and so they were unclean and they were excluded and absent from the temple. They were defiled. And they were outcasts, especially to the Jerusalem crowd. In fact, the, the writing code, the legal code of, of Judaism says they couldn't be a witness in an event. It's like they couldn't stand up as a witness because they were considered to be suspect because they were not known well enough. They were always out there. But on this night in Luke, everything changed. On a starry night, outside of Bethlehem, a group of shepherds... Humble, nameless, nothing known about them, shepherds, only known to God, were forever changed. And think about that event. What they heard and saw as they were the humble recipients of this blazing light show got burned in their hearts. And what's the need is how they responded to God. And that's the picture that touches my life they went from the dazzling light show in the fields and they searched till they found him. You know, they weren't content with just the show. The angels, the countless angels, in in such intense light, coming from the presence of God, announcing this. And, And that was a lifetime experience in itself. But they weren't content with just that show. They did what they were asked to do and searched Till they found him. That's an interesting thought. Luke tells us that they found him and they were never the same. Well, the shepherds are so much like us, God knows just where we are. You know, a lot of people think God's lost their phone number or their email or their address, you know? And they're constantly worried that that God doesn't know they're there. God knows. His wisdom, his infinite wisdom. He knows everything and God knows exactly where we are just like he knew where they were. And God came to them. And that's a picture of salvation. God comes to us. God tells us how we can see Jesus. He told the shepherds, this is how you get to see him. God tells us how to find him. In fact, that's part of Bible study. What does the Bible say? You'll seek me and you find me when you seek for me half-heartedly, Right? Did I quote that well? Would I get that in Awana uh, as a verse I did? No. When you seek for me with what? All your heart. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. God is very demanding. He said, I want all your attention. I don't want partial attention. I don't want your distracted attention. I don't want the sound of, uh, you ever talk to someone, you hear them typing, you know, or clicking on the phone, you're talking to them and you go, "Are you doing something else?" Go, uh, "What?" Uh, "Yeah." Uh, "Why?" And, and we're so used to being distracted. God says, "I want your eye single on me." And the shepherds are a picture of that. In one moment, everything they'd ever gleaned from scriptures came alive to those shepherds. God, angels, heaven, Messiah, promises, prophecies—all of it became real. It's kind of like the Bible came alive. In that moment, sacrifices, lambs, offerings, sin, and forgiveness was intensely personal. The sheep that they watched and sold were pictures now of God's mercy and grace. They weren't just commodities. They didn't didn't deal in secondhand truth, it was personal. And that's part of the problem that Revelation 2 and 3 says that the last days church has. They deal in secondhand information, they purvey Stuff that they heard, but they've never experienced. I, I mentioned many times, I was uh, mentored in the ministry at Grace Community Church with Dr. MacArthur, and and I remember he used to tell us, don't try and live up to your preaching. Preach what you're living. <laughs> you, see, there's too much secondhand information that's never been experienced, that's just passed on. Have you ever experienced it? I don't know, but it's probably true. You know, it must work. Instead of speaking from... The experience of the truth. Well, the question for us tonight is, have we decided to be among those who humbly serve like the shepherds? And and I'd just like to walk through their lives with you because these shepherds represent the best of all of God's word about what comes to humble servants. So the birth announcement, Um, starting in Luke 2.8. In fact, let's jump right into it. Shepherds lived on the fringe of society. Look what it says in in Luke 2 and verse 8. And if you just read the Christmas story, with the eyes, kind of put the lens up uh, and and try and see the the humble setting and the message the Lord has. It says, now there were in the same country shepherds, look at the, the details, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. So this is a round-the-clock deal. And they're living out there. They're away from society. They lived on the fringe of society. Their work kept them from the temple, from the synagogues. They were ceremonial unclean. They were outcasts. So number one, shepherds were on the fringe. The second thing that's true, look at verse nine. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And look at the result. This is a common event. Whenever humans get to see the glory of God, it scares them. It, it, well, Isaiah says, I'm dissolving. Job says that, that I'm coming undone. Uh, Peter says, get, depart from me. I'm unclean. Your glory is so great, I can't be around it. Moses, being in the, for 40 days, began to glow. God's glory is overwhelming. When the Apostle John saw Jesus with that face that glowed like the sun, you know, the book of Revelation has 404 verses in it, over 800 allusions and quotations and direct ties to almost every other Book of the Bible. The book of Revelation is the most connected book in the Bible to every other book because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's the theme of the Bible. And so Revelation ends with that connection to everywhere else. But when, the, when John on Patmos saw Jesus as he is in his, his resurrection glory with a face that shone like the sun in its strength, what did he do? Did he walk up and say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> He fell on his face and became what? Like a dead man. See, God's glory is overwhelming. It humbles us. You see, God wants us to see his glory because to glorify him, we have to see him as he is and see ourselves as we are. And we fall short of his glory. And so God showed them his glory and they had the right response the end of verse 9, look what it says. They were greatly afraid. Next, God sent, look at t- verse 10. Uh, it's fascinating. It says, and the angel said to them, do not be afraid. <laughs> they were. They were greatly afraid, verse 9. Don't be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. Now look at verse 13. As the angel continued, suddenly, behind the, the one angel, there was with the angel a multitude. Now that Greek word is striata. That, that speaks of, the, in, in um, military terms, it's kind of like an innumerable army. A striata would be like you know, facing the million Persians or whatever uh, from Alexander the Great's time. A multitude, a countless army of heavenly hosts that were praising God. And we know the, the Christmas story. The angel said, don't be afraid. And then suddenly, verse 13, there was this multitude. And that word is used in biblical times for a a military encampment that just stretched so far. In fact, in Revelation 5.11, this word constitutes a number that humans can't comprehend. It says in Revelation 5.11, there was a multitude no one could number. There was a striata that, that was numberless. So this is this huge group. God sent a countless army of angels to announce Christ's birth. Why? Because Jewish tradition is that when a son was born, the entire village gathered to celebrate. That family had such a blessing that the name would continue. And when God's son was born, there was no one. Remember, he came to his own, his own, received a knot, and they, they didn't care. So God sent his own welcoming committee, a countless number of angels, and nameless shepherds. It's such a picture. Well, what are some, what I call, profound lessons? The shepherds show us how God delights in using his glory, for his glory, the humble. The Lord did not pick the religious leaders, the Lord did not pick the wise men to announce, witness the birth of Christ. They actually came quite a while later. If you look and piece the story together, they are not coming to the stable. I know in our you know, manger scenes they're there, but they weren't. You know, it was a ways away because it, they come later, just before the flight to Egypt and kind of finance that. It's the humble shepherds that were the only witnesses of this birth. God delights using for his glory the humble. God calls some of the most distant people, some of the most defiled and outcast people of the day, to produce great glory for himself. Why? Because God resists the proud. That's a common denominator through all these accounts. God resists the proud, but James says he gives grace to the humble. The shepherds remind us how God came to mankind. God always opens the door to the humble. He wants to. He wants, us, he wants to douse us with grace if we will choose to clothe ourselves with humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and the shepherds remind us how God came to mankind. God is the seeker, God is the initiator and God responds to those who humble themselves before him. And so the shepherds humbly responded. They were willing to listen and God used them. Now remember, the greatest plague on earth is not AIDS, that poor fella, uh, the husband died of. That's not the greatest plague on earth. The HIV virus is not, it's the SIN virus, and the middle letter of the SIN virus kinda nails it. Pride is the worst plague on earth. And that's what we have to be careful about. More people miss the Christ of the scriptures and heaven because of pride than any other sin. Wanting our own way is how God describes we were born, Isaiah 53, 6. We're like straying sheep. We want to go our own way. Pride was the first sin as Lucifer challenged God. Pride is the ultimate sin. Every conflict, all troubles flow downward from pride. That's why it says the soft answer turns away wrath. As soon as we do not proudly defend ourselves, it diffuses. God says wisdom is that we respond humbly. Pride is the ultimate sin. It's the source of every gossip. It's the source of every hurt feeling, of every time Christ Church divides. Every departed sheep. There's pride involved at the heart of every fight. Is pride. I want. I want to win. And competitiveness which is so ingrained in American culture, God says that, that we are not to constantly be striving for our own way. This, this competitive spirit, James says, doesn't come from above. When we are striving for our own way, James chapter 3 says, that is not biblical wisdom that comes down from God. It's part of Satan. He is the one who wants to divide through this my desire over yours and so god opens the door to the humble 20 years ago moody monthly uh, carried an article if you read moody monthly it was a fascinating title said pride is an epidemic and i thought it is Uh, a pastor and i've never met him but i read the articles so many times i feel like i know him his name was james jornstad so he's some scandinavian fella and he wrote this. He said, At one time, most Christians believed that to have a close relationship with God, a person should magnify God, deny themselves the pleasures of this world, repent, confess their sins, and live a holy, separated life. Their heroes were missionaries who gave up everything to serve God and martyrs who suffered because of their faith. Today, this is in the 90s, it's a, it's a different story. He says, Christians today believe that to have a close relationship with God, a person should realize how important they are. As God intended them to be, they should pursue their dreams and their aspirations. They should become affluent and successful. In fact, we have a whole division of Christianity that's called health and prosperity. Health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean, that's just, that's just kind of the, the growing segment of Christendom. It's embodying this. Pursue your dreams and aspirations, become affluent and successful, become independent and financially sound. And their heroes are celebrities, self-made individuals who happen to be Christians. And behind this new gospel are all these famous teachers and preachers, and they proclaim a variety of ways to attain prosperity and success. And there's one common denominator in all of them. It's not biblical. It's not. God says the way up is down. God says the way the front line is go to the back, not to push your way forward and strive and accomplish. As we examine their theology, they're not biblical. Well, the shepherds humbly responded to God. One of the things that's neat uh, about a servant is a servant, you know someone is a servant when they don't mind being told what to do. Did you know most people don't like to be told what to do? They kind of bristle at it. They say, wait a minute, are you ordering me? Are you telling me what to do? And God says, my servants. In fact, the reformers are the ones that softened that word. Actually, the word in the Bible is not servant. Servants could choose to be servants. You could kind of be a a day laborer if you wanted to. This is a slave. This is a, a person, like Abraham's talking about, which is so bad today, but in the biblical times, people were like appliances. When we take people to the agoras, the forums, the, the, the uh, uh, areas where the marketplaces were, in every Roman city, there's always a spot for slaves to be sold. And they were in that little square, and they were held up, and there was a price tag on them, and, and it's like buying a popcorn popper or a blender. You just got the one you wanted, and they were your possession. In fact, some of the Roman emperors, if you read, um, there's a neat book called Daily Life in Ancient Rome by uh, Carcapino. He did his doctorate at, at Harvard. And, and he said that there were Roman emperors that would go and buy all the slaves and feed them to their eels, their conger eels. That would just, And that was entertainment. They would buy the slaves and feed them to the eels. And the eels would thrash around and eat them up and all the guests would watch. And there was nothing wrong with it because they were a possession that was sold. And so slavery to us rightfully has a lot of bad sides to it but the element god likes is a slave is completely owned by their master and they don't mind being told what to do and that's what humility is all about wanting to do the will of my father at the end of the bible in revelation 2 there's only two things that remain god and his servants they're called bond servants they're slaves And to the extent we humble ourselves to do his will is to the extent that we are a good and faithful slave. Well done, good and faithful, not choose what you want to do and do it whenever you want to, but someone who does the will of another. A slave is someone who does someone else's will, not their own. And that's what God calls us to do. So look at verse 15, the shepherds responded to God at once. It says, so, verse 15 says, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, boy, that was a great show. Wow, I wonder if they're going to come back. No, let us now go. I remember I told you Stud had his red and blue pen that he marked his Bible with. Did you know he told people, he said, I don't want to be consciously aware of anything that God wants me to do that I'm not responding to. That's why he went to the heart of Africa after he'd gone to the heart of China and the heart of India. Stud made the rounds, the missionary stud that died in 1931. He started in China and moved on to India and finally ended his his earthly ministry in Africa. Let us now go. Let us respond to God at once. You know, most things, when we're confronted with the word of God, we get this internal stirring. We go, I should do something about that. But the longer we wait, the less it's on our mind. That's why it says in Hebrews and in the Pentateuch, while you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. See, God stirs our hearts to respond. And they responded let us go now to bethlehem and see what this thing that's come to pass that the lord has made known to us what a picture of faith they received the message they acted on it they didn't doubt they didn't disagree they didn't hesitate they just heard and responded and guess what they were the first ones to see jesus isn't that neat because they responded they had little knowledge and great faith jesus was soon going to be moved by his parents They would have missed him. Their simple faith is richly rewarded because they responded right away. The shepherds, also, another thing that's humble about them, not only their quick response, but look what it says in verse 16. It says, and they came with haste and found. That's a fascinating word. It means they searched until they found him. Do you think, it's easy to find someone in a town swollen with people on their way to the census. All these clans were coming and you know the house of David was there and everything was overflowing and, and they, they had to question people. They didn't want to talk. They had to, to go. It was night and, and they didn't have lights. They had lamps and most people didn't stay up much after dark and so they're going around searching in the night. Very bothersome. In their day, they weren't welcome. They weren't supposed to be in town anyway. Stay where you were, people would say. Go away, we don't like you. You're an outcast. You're unwelcome. You smell. Yet they came, they found, they believed. They went against the crowd. They went against what everyone else, which would say, hey, you know, stay away. We're busy, it's late, come on. I never heard of him, don't know what's going on. They went against the crowd. Now, real quickly to apply this, because... Humility is so important that I don't want to just hear it. I'd like to think about how to do it. So, four lessons in humility from the shepherds. Number one, God changed them. Before that night, they did an, a job that was so monotonous. Did you know watching sheep? Sheep are terrible. Sheep walk so much in the same place, their pathways become trenches. In fact, when you tour the land of Israel, you can see the, the trails of the goats and sheep on every hillside because they don't go anywhere. They follow the very same paths until they wear these lines that, that you can see on every hillside, the marks of their, the pathways. God changed them. The scene that they witnessed on the hillside and then in the stable forever changed their lives they had found him. God said, I'm sending my beloved, my, my promised one. And if you want to see him, go now and look for him till you find him. And they went, okay. I believe you, angel, that God said that. And they went looking. And they were never the same. And they're immortalized in this scripture. What happened was... In that moment, everything they'd ever heard about the scriptures came alive. God was real, angels were real, they heard him and saw him. Heaven was open, Messiah arrived. Promises and prophecies in that old book were real. It all made sense. That's why when they went into the town, people were amazed. When you read the Christmas story, it says that, that the whole town started rippling with these un. Civilized, uneducated, unsocial men came with this passion that couldn't be resisted. Now, the question for us is, did you know I'm describing what salvation is? God reveals himself to us, offers us, when we're convicted of our sin and and he is opening our eyes to the truth of salvation, he offers to us to meet Jesus Christ personally. And you can't have God open your eyes and draw you and point you to Christ and see Christ and stay the same. See, that's a problem with 21st century Christendom. Barna and Gallup can't find a statistical difference between Christians and unsaved people. They divorce at the same rate. They, they use all kinds of you know, uh, different drugs at the same rate. They are the same rate of pornography consumption. They're at the same level of greed. They are just as unhappy. There's no statistical difference in Christendom and those that don't claim to be Christians. It's amazing. The question is, God changed them. Has God ever changed you? Not the people around you. You. See, that's that's the power of Christ in me. That, that when Mr. Walgreens follows me around Walgreens yesterday, I finally got the message that the Lord was giving me someone to share the gospel with. What do I share? What someone else said or what I have personally experienced? That I know Christ. I will never die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That, that I believe the nevers of Christ. That I believe That he is real, that he is living within me, that I will never answer for my sins. That God treated Jesus like he committed 61 years of sin, just like I have, and more. And God punished Jesus like he's committed every sin I ever will or ever have or will. And God has erased the record that I've sinned. Wow. If you cannot strike up a conversation with Mr. Walgreens that follows you around, the manager, because he doesn't have anything else to do, I wonder, has God ever changed you? We have a lot of mute Christians that I wonder, how can the infinite, eternal God of the universe live inside that person and you don't see any evidence of it? Anytime. Yet, we have churches filled with people like that. I told you I did the funeral And the people said they'd never heard the gospel, ever. I just presented the simple John Wesley gospel, you know. And they said, we've never heard that. We've come to this church for 60 years. And I thought, what do you hear? You know, I mean, wow, that's amazing. Okay, number two. Not only did they change, God became real to them. Think about it. All those endless sacrifices, those people were professional sacrifice raisers. That's what the sheep were for. They weren't having, you know, lamb kebabs. This was in Bethlehem because Bethlehem was 50 blocks from the biggest consumer of lambs in the country. These guys were intricately involved with the production of sacrifice lambs countless lambs, myriads of offerings, countless sins, promises of forgiveness. All of a sudden, this became intensely personal to them because they met the one God promised. The Lamb of God Himself. The ordinary sheep they watched and sold became extraordinary pictures of God's mercy and grace. The temple they supplied now became the place where the sacrifices for their sins were offered. Do you know what the difference of salvation is? Paul put it this way He gave Himself for me. That's Paul's testimony. Remember, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And thy life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself for me. Not for them, not for us, for me. See, salvation is an intensely personal thing. And all of a sudden it became personal to them. At last, all the mysterious rites, all those ceremonies made sense because they had seen the promised Lamb of God. I wonder, has God ever become personal, real, and near? I mean, I've been a pastor for 40 years. I've met so many people that talk about salvation in the past tense. Oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, I've done that. I prayed that. I did that. When did you do that? Oh, 40, 50 years ago. I said, well, tell me something right current in your life that is an evidence that Christ is alive in you. That he's real, that he's that he's active. Uh, I did that, you know. I mean, they, they can't think of of the reality of Christ. I wonder, has God ever become personal and real and near to you? Mm, only have four minutes. I when I was uh, in my last year in seminary, I agreed to lead a group on a 96-day, 36-country journey around the world. And I said, I'll take you if you pay for it. Wouldn't you? And so this group of wealthy older people took me on a 96... Well, I took them, but they paid for it, on a 36-country, 96-day trip around the world. Now, I arranged that September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, nine months before I met Bonnie. I met Bonnie on May 1st, Changed everything, everything in my life, but I was committed to this trip. And I, every day up until the departure, I didn't want to go on that trip. And I remember even with tears running down my face asking Bonnie if there's a way I could cancel this trip. She said, honey, you need to go. So we agreed we'd get married at the end of the trip, so December 27th. So we left on September 1st, this group. And my wife-to-be wrote a handwritten letter to me Found the itiner- I gave her the itinerary. She found how to send a letter and get it there in time. And every hotel I checked into, I would get to the desk and give them my passport, and they would go, oh, we've been waiting for you to come. And they'd hand me this letter with hearts and perfume. Every hotel. And I'd get that letter, and I'd go, hey, thanks, and I'd throw it in my suitcase. Never opened any of them. Never read them, right? 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 are you kidding? I can still feel hitting the, the counter, and I, I'd, I'd fall to the floor sitting at the desk of the hotel, tearing that thing open madly, and the group was waiting. And I'd say, go to your rooms. I'm reading my letter from Bonnie. And she just wrote letters to me around the world, every hotel I got. And I could tell you funny stories about that. Do you know why I opened them and, and couldn't wait to get to the desk? And, and why the, the The clerk couldn't wait to give it to me because there was such an evidence of a person that I loved and longed for and couldn't wait to hear from and couldn't wait at the end of 96 days to see. Now, I just described what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And this is the love letter and the envelope that we're to tear open. And a lot of people throw it in the suitcase. Show no evidence of a longing like those that are engaged to be married. Wow, has God ever become personal, real, and near to you? Number three, God started them down a new path. That night, their lives changed. They went back to the old job, but they were new people. They went to the old job, but they were new men. I wonder, has God started you down a new path, his pathway for your life? Are you absolutely, totally convinced that you are doing what God called and designed and empowers you to do. Do You walk through life with this expectancy. I think about my father, my father worked 46 years for General Motors, Olsenville Division, the same plant in Lansing, plant three. 46 years, same building. 46 years, same job. My dad loved his job. He had his lunch pail, and the UAW made him have a break every five minutes, I think, back then. The UAW had, I, I think you you worked five minutes and had the rest of the hour off. I don't remember what the deal was, but he loved it. It wasn't that bad. It was probably 10 minutes. But, but he would pack his lunch pail with all these materials, and he taught himself Greek at Oldsmobile, Hebrew at Oldsmobile. He, he memorized the scripture. He, he, he found books from Moody that cold whatever you pronounce, Coal Portage Library, those paperbacks that he could fold them up and stick them in his lunch pail. And he shared the gospel in plant three. Never went to any foreign field. He never really was a street preacher. He just served God right where he was. He was convinced. He was called to work there. You see, everybody wants to do something else or be someone else or be like someone else and God says, but I made you just uniquely for something I designed you for. If you spend less time trying to be someone else and just do what I called you to do and let me start you down my path. (laughs) Finally, the last thing about them, God captivated them. That announcement under the stars, that awesome fearful moment, those blazing sights, those glorious words Luke records, they rushed from the glowing skies and searched for Christ. God captivated them. They couldn't do anything else. They wanted to go and find Jesus. Does God captivate your heart and mind? How soon do you forget what you learn about God in your devotions? What can't you wait to do next? That's really the essence of our life. What, What can't we wait to do next? Now, time to go think for a moment if you're left alone for more than a few moments what captures your mind truths from the god of the universe or some game on your phone be honest what what is your default setting as soon as you have in fact this past week when you had five or ten or twenty minutes to do anything you wanted to do did you go toward god toward his word toward what will last forever Were you often captivated by God's presence? Or this past week when you had time, were you captivated by some clean secular music? I mean, you just can't get enough of the music. How about some clean electronic game, some visual media, uh, you know, watching some show or series or movie? All of those are neutral, by the way. Note the word clean, you know, music or game or movie. But if they're sensual or demonic or murderous or evil, then they're sinful. But if they were clean, they're fine to spend time on if God stays more important. See, seek ye first. Top shelf is God. Our problem today is God's on the top shelf. We put other stuff up there too. Our games and our jobs and our pursuits are at the same shelf. If you can't remember the last time you just couldn't pull yourself away from God's word or praying or being in his presence, and you can remember your games on your phone or your music or your social media or your hobby or your pursuit, then God says, we have a problem. He doesn't captivate us. Our heart is divided, like James said. Double-mindedness makes us unstable. I wonder, has God ever captivated you? Well, it's time to go and it's three minutes over time and you're gonna miss your ice cream or whatever it is we're going to, but I would like to give an exam. So it's time for everyone to close your eyes. I want you to think about what I'm gonna say. Let's do a heart exam. Bow your heads with me and ask yourself one question. By my actions for the last week in my time usage, was God more important than my music, my games, my friends, my hobbies, my work, my finances, or was he less important? Now be honest, it's just you thinking through your life. Pick one or the other. Now, with heads bowed, let's do a survey. How many of you say you struggle to keep God more important than things that you really like in your schedule, like music and games and activities and being online? I mean, honestly, raise your hand. You say, I struggle. Okay, my hand's raised with you. Now with our heads bowed, Before the Lord, it's time to do something. Why not right where you sit, cry out to God and say, I want you to humble me this week. I want to repent of going my own way in my schedule, in my time usage, in my investment of my most precious commodity, my my life's breath and time. And I want to humbly invite you, God, to again be first in my life. And ask God to captivate you this week, do an experiment. Go out and sit in one of those chairs by the lake or find somewhere quiet and ask him to captivate you and tell him how much you love him and ask him to show himself to you as you read his word in a profound way this week that will infect you with never being content with less than that. Father, I pray that, that Go Lake will not be just a place where we learn new cool exciting bible trivia facts but it will be a place where we say like we were just singing i need you oh i need you every hour i need you and i pray that we would seek you and find you when we seek for you with all of our hearts in the name of jesus we ask that and all god's people said amen